Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. So, I want to talk to you this morning about truthful love. We're in this series, as intended, we're going through the book of Matthew, we're sitting at Jesus' feet as our master teacher and asking him, Jesus, what do you have to say about relationships? So we're looking at everything Jesus said and everything he didn't say about relationships. And we've been in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives us this penetrating analysis of all the dynamics that so disrupt and uproot our relationships. And he contrasts them with the dynamics of love. And so our passage today is going to get into the verbal dimensions of relationships. How do we make loving use of language? And so our passage today, it's Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. So if you'd open your Bible, we're going to read together. And we're going to see that Jesus begins with the same formula that he has with the other three that he's made that we've seen in previous weeks. And it begins in verse 33. And it says, Again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now that's not a single quotation from the Torah. It is a summary of the teaching of the Torah that he's referencing there. And it says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, so if you were with us in the previous weeks, we were seeing how Jesus addresses anger and murder and contempt and idolizing lust. And the problems with those things are pretty clear and urgent and obvious. But you have to ask, what exactly is the big problem here? It almost seems a little bit trivial in comparison to the previous things that he's been talking about. Why does he go on to talking about swearing oaths? What we're going to see here is in the same way that anger and contempt lead to the physical destruction of the body and idolizing lust leads to the objectification of the body, well, the misuse of language does violence to the human soul. Trust is an inextricable part of loving relationships. It's actually, you can't operate a society without trust. And you see that anytime a bank begins to fail. It's all based on trust. But here's the thing. In a fallen world where people lie to each other, how do we make sure, how do we have any kind of guarantee that people are actually telling the truth? Well, this is where swearing oaths comes in, of course. Just this past Thursday, the staff know I was in court for a parking ticket. I was fighting the parking ticket And I beat the case, guys. Beat the case. (laughs) Complete injustice. (laughs) And I'm there before the judge. It's this tiny kind of like beat up room. And uh, 
And the judge, before I say anything, says, raise your hand and do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God. And I thought, yes, I'm finally an American. This is it. This is the thing that people all around the world, they see it on TV, all the episodes of Law and Order, all the, you know, this is it. And I said, I do. And I told the truth and the truth prevailed. Okay. The other place we see this, of course, is in the marriage ceremony. We vow to one another and it's, we're doing a similar thing and God and people at the wedding are witnesses. And so that's a little bit of what we see Jesus talking about here. But what's a little harder to appreciate, because that's the only place that we have that kind of thing today, it's hard to appreciate just how central the swearing of oaths was to pre-modern society, especially, well, in Jesus's time, especially. The historian Melissa Moore writes this, in, in, for instance, in, in medieval England, it was possible for a person's guilt or innocence to be proven by an oath alone. If someone was accused of a crime, he could swear an oath he was innocent, And if he found a certain number of oath helpers who would swear that his oath was sincere, he would be released. And that was true even for murder, believe it or not. If you could find 36 people who would swear that your oath was accurate, you'd be released for murder. All right? Now, I mean, that sounds absolutely ridiculous in today's world, right? Because if you're willing to purge yourself, I mean, perjure yourself, who wouldn't do that? to get away with murder, but it's, it seems utterly naive in our day. I think it's only because we live in this disenchanted world where we've lost the true power of words. In the pre-modern world, in Jesus's time, and for, you know, up until very recently, really, taking an oath in the name of God was an extremely serious thing. Because the understanding was, the assumption was, that God would surely punish you if you broke that oath. They had this understanding that there was a fixed order to reality and that if you broke your oath, that you would, be, you would come up against that reality and you would suffer consequences. And of course, we believe something like that today. It's just that we depersonalize it and we turn it into laws of nature. So we know in the same way, you might believe that you can fly, but as soon as you jump off a building, you encounter reality. right? And we say, you can't break that reality. You're going to face it. And in the pre-modern world and in Jesus's worldview, he says, you know what? Moral reality works that way too. You can't actually break God's moral law. You will run up against reality. And when you try and break the law of truth, relationships get broken. Community gets broken. And actually, a person begins to break down inside. You will suffer the consequences. And so, that's where the concept of oaths comes from. It comes out of that understanding. And you have to ask, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that a good thing to to make people more truthful? And don't we actually even see this in the Bible? We do, actually. The Apostle Paul takes a vow. Jesus gives testimony under oath in court. God himself swears by his own name in making the covenant. And so what exactly is Jesus condemning? Because he's not just banning these things. We have to remember the whole way through, he's not just giving us more laws. He's getting to the deeper things. 
Okay? And so what is he condemning and what is he commending in its place? That's what I want to spend our time on here. All right, so I was looking forward to an opportunity to talk about this because to see what Jesus is condemning, we need to get a better understanding of the role of swearing. Okay? Melissa Moore, who I just mentioned, she wrote a fascinating history of swearing. It's not for the faint of heart, guys. And I can't even repeat the name of the book without fear of getting fired. So, (laughs) but what she says, basically, her argument is swearing is the invocation of taboos for emphasis and trust building. All right? Taboos are the things that have the power to shock and catch our attention. And she points out there's really only two sources of taboo. There is the sacred and the profane. There's the religious and the human body, the unsavory aspects of the human body, or especially sexuality. And it's interesting to me that Jesus mentions both of these arenas of taboo in what he says. He says, don't swear by the sacred, but also don't swear by your own body, by the profane. And the most sacred thing in Jesus's culture, of course, was the divine. It was the sacred That was the thing more than anything else that had the power to shock and catch people's attention. And that was true in, 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 you know, Judeo-Christian civilization all the way up until the 19th century. The way people really didn't feel any way about talking about the body or any of the bodily functions. There, there was, you know, even in the old translations of the Bible, you'll find words that we would never say in church today because a lot of people would leave. People didn't have any privacy. They didn't care about talking about that. What was taboo to them, what was sacred to them was the holy. It was the divine. And so if you really wanted to catch someone's attention or you wanted to shock, you would, you would swear on the divine. And there's some of those things, if you, read, if you read Shakespeare, you see some of those things that were still lingering around that time. Jesus also makes reference, though, to the other source of taboo, which is the human body. This was the thing that the Greeks and the Romans found most sacred. They didn't care so much about the holy, they cared about the body. And that's exactly what our culture finds most holy as well, if you notice. And you can tell by the language that has the power to shock and catch our attention. You could shout the name of Jesus angrily, and it would make it into a kid's movie, right? but you can't use words about certain bodily functions or sexuality because those are the things that are most holy to our society. Isn't that interesting? I think it is. So, (laughs) it used to be that only swearing religious oaths would have that kind of power, but actually, Melissa Moore points out that swearing, or curse words, as you sometimes call them, we actually use them in the same way that people used to use religious oaths. Here's what she says. She says, swear words are the most powerful words we have with which to express extreme emotion, whether negative or positive. And she said, I like this analogy. She says, language is a toolbox, and swearing is a hammer. You can try to pound a nail into a piece of wood with the handle of your screwdriver or with your wrench, but it's only your hammer that's perfectly designed for the job. All right, now, why am I mentioning that? Because I think it helps us get to what Jesus is actually talking about here. All right? If you think back to what was going on with anger, what was going on with lust and contempt, it was using good and powerful things that God had created and turning them for selfish purposes— for the idolization of power and desire. And 
what Jesus says is those are the things that lead to the breakdown in our relationships. And more than that, they lead to the breakdown of the fabric of God's creation. Because when you think about it, how did God create the universe? He spoke it into existence, right? He brought, through his word, he brought order out of chaos. And part of what it means for human beings to be made in his image is actually he's given us a measure of that power. That through our language, through our words, we can bring order out of chaos. That's the whole modern endeavor is bringing order to the universe and using it to our advantage through language, through naming things, through, through categorizing everything. And so what you see is all through scripture, it talks about the power of language. Proverbs and the book of James, you think of especially the power of life and death is in the tongue. And so there's this tendency, just as we saw with anger and power and sex, there's this tendency to misuse this tool of language, which has such power to build up, but it also has such power to destroy. And we use it to destroy relationship on the altar of desire. And the immediate, that what helps us understand the immediate context of what Jesus is saying. We read in chapter 23 where Jesus is pronouncing, he's condemning the Pharisees. He says, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. He says, you blind fools. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and, who, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And so this is seven, it's part of the seven woes that Jesus pronounces over the Pharisees. And if you read them, you find that all of them have to do with this tendency to want to manipulate the rules in order to use people and things to get what we want. And of course, the law commanded not to lie. Of course, it commanded to be true to your word, to the oath that you swear. Of course, public promises like marriage and what we do in court are good. That's what the Bible would call sincere swearing. But just like we saw with the, with the teaching on divorce, what happens is we take these rules that are intended to limit sin and we turn them into ways to selfishly gain what we desire. We twist them. And so this is what the Bible would call vain swearing. And effectively what's going on here is Jesus says, you think that there's levels of truthfulness. That if you use certain words, well, then you really got to do what you say. But other words, you can kind of get around it. Of course, we say the same thing with contracts, right? Look at the letter of how it's worded and we'll go through all these court cases to say, well, it's not worded exactly like that. So you have a way out. You can get out. And we establish these levels of truthfulness. And if you think about, as soon as you do that with language, what happens is language becomes a tool of manipulation. Some people call it spin, right? Some people call it advertising. <laughs> but you think I'm being facetious, guys. Thank you, advertisers, for letting us know about things that are, you know, helpful for us. But here's the thing if you think about it, 
whenever there's something that we want, that we desire, that we have to get, what is the first tool that we tend to use? We tend to use our language, right? It's usually the first thing that we'll manipulate and see if that works before we go any further. And what's the most effective way to manipulate with language? It's to evoke the things that people most care about. The things they most hold sacred. And if you can tap into those things, you can convince people to believe you. And so we can sum this up by saying, vain swearing manipulates people to get what you want. And I think that's often exactly what we're doing when we swear. And I'm talking about the whole, the gamut of everything that falls into that. It's not just that certain sounds are somehow inherently evil. I mean, that's all language is, ultimately, when it comes out of us. It's sounds, right? God created sounds. He created language. It's good. But what happens is we take that good tool and we begin to hammer people with it. We use it to manipulate people's opinion and their freedom to get what we want. And when we do that, we're misusing the tool and we're misusing people. And it's why the misuse of language is so much deeper than just four-letter words that you have to avoid. And I think, we as Christians, we can get really bent out of shape about the four-letter words. And I'm not giving you license to go, you know, let it rip. But we can get really uncomfortable with people using certain wrong words. And, you know, even in the secular world, there's a permutation of this. Because in the secular world, you know, basically anything goes except for anything racist or homophobic. Which is the last real taboo and, you know... Thank God for that, actually, rightly. But when you think about it, both of those things are actually that same Pharisee mindset that Jesus is talking about. It's this mindset that says, as long as I avoid these taboo words, then, you know, my language is okay. I'm not going to get canceled by my community, as long as I avoid these particular words. And so it, it becomes this kind of political spin kind of way of thinking about how we use our language. But Jesus is saying, you can avoid all the bad words that your community finds unacceptable, and you can still utterly destroy a person and a relationship. And actually, that's what you should be concerned about far more than using certain bad words. And so... I think that's relatively easy to see that we don't just have to swear in order to tear somebody down. But I think it it goes a lot deeper than this. It's more subtle than this, right? And it's come to my awareness that I have several people that I quote very frequently. And so if you've got your Pastor Ian bingo card out, you're about to scratch a name off, okay? Dallas Willard says, (laughs) what Jesus is doing here is pointing, he's pushing deeper down into our tendency to use language to impress people and to get our own way. And what was really interesting in getting into this was when you look at that word to swear an oath that Jesus uses, there's two other times in the book of Matthew where that is used, all right? The first is Matthew 14, and this is where King Herod swears an oath to Herodias that he'll give her anything she wants. And she says, well, give me the head of John the Baptist. And it says, it's interesting. He says, because of his oath 
And because of his guests, he didn't want to do it, but he did it. Right? Now, what was that about? It's about impressing people. It's about not losing face. He fulfilled his oath. You know, pastors have a special way of counting sometimes, which sometimes inflates the numbers of people. Oh, there was like a thousand people there. You know. (laughs) Sometimes that's about impressing people, wanting people to know that our church is doing really well. It also happens with companies who inflate their quarterlies for investors to make them think that the company's doing really well. And it's all about impressing people. And when we do that, it gets us into trouble. Now, the other example of this word is in Matthew 26, where it's the word that's used of Peter when he denies Jesus three times. It says, by the third time, he was swearing and cursing and making oaths that he had nothing to do with Jesus. And what did that do? It says in one of the other gospels that Jesus looked at him and Peter broke down. It says he went out and wept bitterly. He was trying to make people believe him. And actually what that is, is manipulating people's judgment. It's trying to make people more intimate than they really should be. It's making them trust you by force of your words. And it makes me think of, I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation and someone plays the God card. You know? It's a way of bypassing sometimes. It was, it's a, I'm not talking about giving prophetic words. I'm talking about using the God card in an argument because there's no card that trumps the God card. And a lot of times, it can be a tool to convince somebody to win an argument when we're not there yet. (laughs) Or this is, another way you see this is when, if you're married or even with a friend or with your parents sometimes, within family, you can see this happening. What about when someone begins to bring curses down on themselves and say, oh, you know, I never get anything right. I'm just worthless. You know, of course, it's my fault. And sometimes... It's bringing curses down on ourselves to create a false sense of trust and empathy and sympathy with the person that we're having a conversation with. And we're actually, a lot of times, it's this protection mechanism to bypass what we know is the truth. And that's a form of verbal coercion. It just doesn't look very coercive, but it is. And so if you remember how Anger and lust, we saw that they basically dehumanize people. Well, using our words to impress and force people to believe us, it actually does the same because what we're doing is we're trying to get around people's freedom of judgment. We're trying to get around their ability to reason, which is part of what God has given them as images of God. We're actually bypassing people's full humanity when we do that. Because as God's free creatures— people should be able to make their own decisions without coercion. And so when we deny people that ability, what happens is they can't thrive. We're actually holding them back from their character developing in the way that God intends. And I think the scary thing is that when you do that, and when you use language in that kind of way, you not only tell a lie, 
But when you tell a lie to impress people, to convince them, you're actually falsifying yourself. You're putting out a false picture of yourself. And so you not only tell a lie, you become a lie. And the last step in that descent is that you actually believe the lie that you tell about yourself. Thomas Merton pointed out, if telling falsehood makes you false, then telling the truth makes you real. Telling the truth actually makes us real. And so what we discover is transparent language respects a person's humanity. And this is where I want to get into, we've seen what Jesus is condemning. Well, what is he commending? He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so he's saying, not only should we not lie, not only should we not use openly offensive taboo language, but we shouldn't seek to manipulate people's trust with our words. And the heart, the kingdom heart that is pervaded by the love of God actually has no need to do that. Jesus is saying, your life should be of such a quality that your yes is yes and your no is no, and that's all people will need. People should trust you based on your character, not on your persuasive words alone. And so Jesus is he's talking about integrity here. We are we're meant to make our words flesh, just like Jesus made the word of God flesh. He was the word made flesh. And we are to make our words flesh in the same way. If you think about it, if you're a person who's free from anger, free from contempt, free from lust, there's going to be little need for you to swear an oath or manipulate people through your language in order to get them to trust you. Why? Because you're going to be a trustworthy person. And it's, I think it, it becomes clear when you put it in the context of friendship or you put it in the context of marriage. What is the evidence? If you think about friendship or marriage, what is the evidence that your friend is trustworthy? What makes you trust them? You know, is it your signed, notarized contract that you signed before you agreed to become friends? And so whenever you're not sure if you should trust them, you just pull a contract out and you're like, well, it says right here, I can trust them. And when you're married, what reason do you have to trust your spouse? It's not because 20, 30 years ago, you made a vow to one another. No, the evidence is them as a person, right? And so where there is love, oaths become unnecessary. And the very reason that contracts have become so central to modern life is because of the breakdown of relationship. And so, <clears throat> what does love do with language? What does the kind of language that builds mature relationship look like? And there's so many places we can go in scripture for this, but I thought of Ephesians 4.15 that says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so, Paul's saying, when we grow up, 
when we mature in our use of language, we begin to use language in the way that Christ did, which was truth and love together. And those are the essential ingredients of loving communication. It's truth and love. And you have to have both of them. You can't, it's not as if you get rid of one and you can keep the other. If you get rid of either one, you lose both. Because if what you're calling truth isn't loving, get this, right? You say, well, I'm just going to tell them like it is. They need to hear the truth. It's tough love, you know. But <laughs> sometimes that's true. But a lot of times, if what we're calling truth isn't loving, then it's not actually true. Because it's failing to acknowledge the deepest truth about a person, which is that they are made in the image of God. They are loved by God. And they are a person, whether or not they follow Jesus, they are a person that Jesus loves and died for. That is the most basic truth about a person, even before the fact that they are a sinner. That is the most basic truth about a person. And so for it to actually be truth, there must be love built into it. But if there's no truth, if there's no reality, here's the other thing, that what you're calling love isn't really love either. What it is actually self-indulgence. I love how Tim Keller points out, he says, if you say, well, I love them too much to tell them the truth. What you're actually saying is, I love myself too much to tell them the truth. Because I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I tell them the truth. The truth is what makes us free. And so I, I think this is a, this is like the core principle of communication, of our use of language in any kind of relationship, and especially intimate relationships like, like marriage and friendship and family. Am I sharing this with this person because I need to look good or I need to win? Or am I sharing it because I love them? Do I love this person enough Despite what may happen to me, despite the consequences, the blowback that might fall on me, do I love this person enough to tell them this truth? You know, a lot of times we, doesn't that come into our fear of evangelism sometimes? Well, I don't want to be weird. I don't want to be the awkward Christian. And we all know that's a real thing. But do I love this person, this coworker, this friend, this family member, this spouse who doesn't know Jesus? And Jesus says, without me, you're lost, you're dead, you're ending up in eternity without me. Do I actually love this person enough to tell them that? Or am I so concerned about my social respectability, my reputation, that I hold back from the truth? There must be truth and love always together. And the point is this, loveless truth is not truth and truthless love is not love. And so Ephesians 4 goes on to say this. There's so many, so many proverbs and teachings in scripture about the kind of language that characterizes love. Well, here, here's how Paul goes on to talk about it in Ephesians 4. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so he's talking about the truth in love is a tool for building up. It's a tool for solidifying relationships. It's a tool for building intimacy. 
But here's the thing. <laughs> I'm going to tell you some bad news, and then I'm going to tell you some really good news. Okay? Here's the bad news. The reason that we use our words to impress and coerce people is the very, it's the very fact that we know that our character doesn't make the cut. That's the reason we feel the need to do it. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden when God says, what have you done? Right? They cover themselves. They spin what happened. They blame shift. And it's our shame that makes us lie. It makes us exaggerate. It makes us inflate. It makes us cut other people down to try and try and impress people because it's our fear that if people knew the real truth about us, that we would be unlovable. They would reject us. And so we use our words like fig leaves to cover up. We know that we can't live up to our own words, let alone God's words. And if you're not sure, you know, that this is really that serious, imagine if someone hung a recording device around your neck and all through your life, all that it recorded were the things that you've said about other people, the judgments you make on other people, the things you say behind your friend and your spouse's back and your parents' back, and all the times where you say, that's not right, you should have done this, that's all it records. And one day you stand before God, the righteous judge, and he says, you know what? I want to be fair. We believe in fairness in this courtroom. I'm not going to judge you by my word. I'm just going to judge you by your word. I mean, who among us would stand, even on our own word? And Jesus is saying, don't swear by the temple and think that, you know, there's a way you can get around it. He's saying, God is everywhere. There's not some words that are under oath and others that aren't. God sees and observes and witnesses everything that we say and think. Everything we say is under oath. Jesus says, this is the law of the moral universe. It is a fixed and hard reality, and one day we will all run up against it. Every word is witnessed. And so, there's also some good news with this. And the good news is better than the bad news was bad. Another bingo card name, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, okay? Only the cross as God's truth can make us truthful. Those who know the cross no longer shy away from any truth. The gospel alone has the power to make us truthful. The gospel alone frees us to speak truthful love. Because here's what the gospel says. Here's what the cross says. You look at the cross and and Jesus says, cheer up, you're far more messed up than you ever thought. You're so messed up that I had to die for you. (laughs) But you're also far more loved than you ever imagined. You're so loved that I died for you. You know what that does? It makes us free to love. Because when we encounter a person that's 
less than lovable, we can remember the truth about ourselves that even when we were lovable and wanted nothing to do with God and were utterly rebellious, Jesus came out and gave himself for us. And you're also free to tell the truth without fear because you know that the most basic truth about you, no matter how much sin you're still working through, no matter how much brokenness you're dealing with in your life, that if Jesus really died for you, then the most basic truth about you is that you are loved. Thomas Merton said, to love sincerely, you must first overcome the fear of being loved. The gospel is the only thing that can make us free and let go of the pretense, to, to let go of the, to drop the fig leaf because we don't need it anymore. We can stand before God with the full naked truth of exactly who we are, exactly how far we've fallen short because he's already seen our tape. He's already heard all those things that we're so afraid of bringing into light. He's already seen them and heard them, and he still decided to die for us, to love us. And so you know what that does? It makes you free from the need to impress. It makes you free from the need to inflate the need to coerce. Why? Because the only one whose opinion really counts about you has already accepted you. The only one whose opinion really counts, the only one who actually knows the full truth, still loves us. And so there's not a truth that I need to fear. There's not a love that I need to withhold. And that's the only way to have relationships of truly faithful love, truthful love. So I want to invite our musicians back up. I want to close with that song that we sang, The Blessing, and I'll tell you why in just a second, but it's that truth that no matter who you are or your circumstances, how far you may be away from God right now in this moment, there's good news that he is for you. He is for you. He's behind you. He's beneath you. He's before you. He's all around you. And he wants to dwell with you. He wants to inhabit your heart in such a way that it begins to transform every part of who you are to transform you from the inside out. Because we can't do this on the strength of our morality and our effort. This can only come by being set free by the gospel and being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And that is an offer that is made to you. To everyone, if you're listening to this 20 years from now, this is an offer that is present and available to you right now. And the question is, have you been honest with yourself yet? Have you been honest enough to admit your dishonesty to him? 
And that honesty begins with the repentance of admitting to him that, you know what, God, I haven't done this. I haven't lived like this. I haven't used my words in this kind of way. And I don't think I can. I need you. Come, Jesus, transform me. If you're listening right now and you're ready right now to say, Jesus, that's me. That's true. I want to come to you. I want to become a child of God who's so transformed by love that I'm free from anger. I'm free from contempt. I'm free from lust. And I'm free from this need that's so deep inside me to impress people and make them think a certain way about me, Lord. Because if this is true, you love me. You've already accepted me. He loves us too much to allow us to destroy ourselves. And his word is ultimate over you. And the question is, will you believe it? Will you accept what he's done for you? And in order to do that, we have to be willing to let go of the facade, drop the mask, and accept his love. And it comes with some really bad news about who we are, but it comes with some even better news about who we are in him. If that's you this morning, you can just come to him in prayer. And even as we sing right now, you can do that. Come to him because he's inviting you into that kind of loving, truthful relationship. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you've made us in your image. And the ultimate truth about who we are is that, that you created us for love. You created us out of your love. And Lord God, I pray that as we recognize all these destructive ways that we use our language, Lord, that you would transform us, that we would be able to speak the truth in love to one another, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our families. Lord, that we would not be so fearful of what people think that we withhold from the truth. Lord, and we would not so love the truth at any cost that we forget to love. Help us to hold those two things together. Holy Spirit, teach us, transform us by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word JESUS to 610-816-6062.